This week's Cloudcast is brought to you by Momentum SI. Whether you want to migrate applications to the cloud, transform to enable DevOps, gain insight from big data, or accelerate your agile development, Momentum SI's strategy, consulting, and hands-on expertise can help you get there faster and with greater success. Check them out at MomentumSI.com. And now, on to the show. Cloudcast Media presents, from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back again to the Cloudcast, coming to you live from Raleigh, North Carolina. Just myself tonight, uh, Aaron is once again off traveling, and you know, a lot of times we talk about sometimes the shiny, sort of, uh, you know, glamorous side of cloud and DevOps, and tonight we're going to try and sort of look at the other side of things, the, the part that, um, you know, sometimes is feels a little bit complicated, but is, is really, really necessary. So tonight we're going to get into... Uh, dive into the operations room, dive into modern environments, problems, false positives, late night calls. And we're very, very lucky that tonight we've got Dave Hayes, who's lead product manager for PagerDuty. So Dave, welcome to the show and uh, thanks for being on. Oh, thanks for having me. So um, I'm going to date myself a little bit, but uh, back when I used to work in support, being on PagerDuty was, was kind of miserable. It was sort of, uh, you were low man on the totem pole or your time came up in the schedule, you were kind of like, crap, I've got to carry around this thing. And we literally were back in the pager days. Um, now with, with sort of modern DevOps teams, it's, the, I mean, the products that everybody's using, the sites that they're running are all 24 by seven. So there is no like days off. And PagerDuty is kind of normal part of duty. I mean, it's normal part of devs' lives, ops' lives. And so you guys are sort of unique. I, I When I first heard about PagerDuty, it was probably three, four, five years ago, uh, some of the local DevOps meetups. And people were talking about, hey, how are you integrating with PagerDuty? What are you guys doing? And I was thinking, are you still guys still talking about just the rotations and schedules? And they were like, no, no, there's this very cool service that is called PagerDuty that runs and stuff. What do you guys see? I mean, like, give me a little bit of, 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 of the background that you guys got started in and, and why this stuff is, you know, sort of so passionate for you guys and what you what what drives you to make the experience better? What are you what are you trying to bring to today's challenges around um, really ops, but but how to make, you know, the late night stuff, the troubleshooting, the monitoring um, simpler and, and more manageable for people? Well, I, th- I think a lot of it is empathizing with the, that dread you're talking about there. Um, because we get an inside view of so many cust- uh, so many teams and so many ops uh, companies, if sometimes it feels like you're watching a horror movie, but instead of screaming, uh, don't go in there, uh, we're thinking, stop waking them up unless you're going to empower them to fix the problem. So one of the big things that we want to focus on is to encourage companies to move to a model where people have ownership and accountability uh, rather than one or the other. So I think my favorite model there is, is something like Netflix's, where when you get the keys to deploy – you get put on pager duty at the same time, very much like uh, linking. If you can break it, you can be paged, and if you can be paged, you're empowered to fix it. So uh, when you said it was a model like being a low man on the totem pole, I really, or we really hope that we move to something more egalitarian. Uh, I don't have a good metaphor for that. Uh, bowl, bowling pins, maybe. Or everyone, everyone's equal. Right. Uh, no, and, and that's and that's sort of a powerful concept because, like you said, it's um, you're basically saying like, hey, if if you're going to be involved with the thing if you're out on the playing field in essence you're you're responsible there is no um sort of you know the the big the big kids will fix every time we talk to 
sort of a lot of the modern um, SaaS-based um, operations companies. So whether they're doing costing or logging, or in your guys' case, you're doing um, you know sort of IT operations, central hub stuff. Um, there's always that moment where people are like, when should I start using a service like this versus doing things on my own? And what are you guys seeing? What's sort of the, the tipping point, the typical environments for the size of your customers? When do people get started? What's a, what's a typical team and diversity of team and so forth? What's, what's that profile look like? So, I mean, it's, it's really hard to call anything typical quite yet. I mean, I'm, you're very aware that there's a transition to the cloud. And I think in general, we're in a period of transition. But there really are some trends you can see. The tools, and I'm really excited about this, the tools are getting better. And at the same time, people are complaining more loudly about the tools. Uh, so we specifically pride ourselves on being the Switzerland of monitoring. So I'm going to try to avoid mentioning any specific tools in particular. But it's basically a case of there are the tools people complain about and the tools no one uses. Gotcha. Uh, the quality bar is being raised as well. Uh, uh, maintenance windows are going out of fashion. Um, and that's making it a lot easier to rely on external services. And it's also making it a lot more effort to deliver things internally that are outside of your core competency. Okay. Um, in, in terms of what our typical customer looks like, it's anyone who cares about reliability. If something can break and you need to have a person notified, we are the standard way of doing that. And that's, that's, not, a, that's not a small subset of people. That's pretty much everyone who has mission-critical systems. Yeah. I mean, it's, everything these days is 24-7. You have kind of no idea where your customers are coming from because they could be global. It could be any time of night. And so that, that makes total sense. Now, one of the things you guys recently sort of rolled out, um, launched and so forth is more of an advanced analytics set um, for your customers. So beyond the, the basic tool set that you provided, it's, it's much more uh, deep in terms of analytics. What what drives that? What's what's uh, What's coming from your customers asking you for that? Or what was confusing them to, to ask for more granularity, more intelligence, and so forth? Yeah, well, it's, it's partially an ask. It's also partially something they didn't even know they should be asking for. Uh, we want to streamline the entire incident lifecycle. So your average company has a really good handle on detect, alert, respond. But once the fire is out the, you know, and everyone's gone back to sleep, the next day activity of understanding the postmortem, understanding what went wrong, and what we can fix about our response process or even our, our development process tends to fall by the wayside. So yeah, we're, we're rolling out analytics and we're kind of, we're pushing four numbers that we want every company to understand, right? Your top number is obviously your incident count. And from that, the thing that really surprised me is actually the number of, of different teams in the same organization that would actually have incident counts that differ by an order of magnitude or sometimes multiple orders of magnitude. And there are far too many teams that treat being paged as a badge of honor. And we're hoping, we're hoping to play a small part in, in removing that, that line of thinking. Gotcha. Gotcha. But now, the, sorry. Now in terms of, in terms of, of the analytics, I mean, it's, um, you know, knowledge is powerful. Data is powerful. Uh, you know, intelligence is, is, you know, especially advanced. Is there, should people be baselining what they do based on these analytics or is it, once you've, you've been using the system for a while, the analytics start to kick in because you have a baseline and you can, you can figure out how much uh, more powerful you can, you can leverage the service and, and, at the end of the day, be more responsive, solve more problems. Um, so in terms of baseline, uh, another one of the key metrics is the number of escalations uh, you, you see in your system. And that does have a baseline. You want to get it to zero sure. um, since each one represents a micro failure. But in the other two, 
the mean time to acknowledge, which you're also trending towards zero, but realistically, it's going to be some number of minutes, and your organization has to figure out what you know what the trade-offs they want to do are. Right? Do you want to alert five people for every incident to have them race just to get that number uh, lower, or are you comfortable with some amount of of you know? Is it ten minutes that somebody has to get to the computer in, um, or is it an hour as it is in some cases? But the really interesting number, the one that I can't give you a baseline for, and you want to just look at relative performance, is your mean time to resolution. Because in a counterintuitive sense, you actually want this to be going up. You uh, Generally, you want the amount of time spent responding to incidents to be going down. But you, if you're removing false alerts um, and you're getting better about uh, the, the quantity of alerts, you're going to be solving far fewer, more difficult problems. So you should see a slight trend upwards in the meantime to resolution. Very cool. Now, I, I know that the, the sort of advanced analytics is, is relatively new, last couple of months. Have you guys seen any sort of interesting initial uh, customer examples where they're like, it, it, it opened their eyes to something really new or sort of unique usage of it that um, it sort of surprised you guys above what you expected to see? Oh, absolutely. Um, my favorite part of this story has been we we kind of hoped in our heart of hearts that this would help with um, increasing the visibility of the ops team inside the organization, and we've we've definitely found that we've uh, there have been a couple of ops teams who've been very successful in just taking a screenshot, sticking it in an email up the chain, and getting more leeway in terms of what they were trying to accomplish, whether it's uh, some tech debt improvement or um, uh, some other improvement in the ops uh, team's life. Very cool. So it's it's this isn't something that you've you've got to live with for a year, six months to a year. I mean, you're kind of getting fairly immediate response, or at least immediate additional insight that you didn't necessarily have before. Absolutely. Very cool. Now, I know I know a lot of our listeners kind of keep up with what's going on with um, things like Netflix and and those guys are sort of famous for things like Chaos Monkey and Simeon Army and breaking their own things. Um, you guys do something very very cool. Uh, as a company that you call Failure Friday, and I and I kind of bring it up because one of the things we always find with the companies that that offer these very cool services is they sort of live the culture. They came from the problem space, so they built the tooling around it. Talk about why you guys do Failure Friday, and and the you know what's what's the reasoning behind it, and um, why other people can kind of learn from essentially you guys breaking your own systems and, and learning how to fix them. Oh yeah. That's- I think I'm going to tell a very simple story there, which is things break and you, I mean, you've got the choice between breaking some medium number of things during the workday when everyone's gathered around and ready to go and they've got their, their tools open or breaking hopefully a smaller number of things at 3 a.m. when everyone's groggy and you don't know what's happening. And if you care about minimizing the number of things that break, you have to really poke and prod. Um, and one of the, one of my favorite things is how many different um, I'm going to call them attack vectors. I know it's not quite what they are, but how many how many suggestions that we have from inter- inside the company for what we should break next? Uh, when you adopt that mentality, it's I think it's a really helpful mentality to understand what could break. When you so you put your black hat on, or I guess your your chaos monkey uh, uniform on, and try to think what could break. And I think that is very helpful. 
right? And and I, I think the the cool thing about that is you guys are open about it, so you you talk about it like in sort of meetup settings and so forth. Do you guys ever post the results of those, like the postmortem, so others can kind of learn from them, or is it a lot of you guys trying to make your service better and and, and improve your what you can deliver to customers? So we. We have. Um, it's actually a, a lot of work to sanitize any sort of a, a postmortem into something that's valuable for people outside the company. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think we really have the spare bandwidth to do that regularly. Gotcha. And, and you guys talk about this idea of like, um, you know, measuring how fast you respond, measuring how fast you're alerted, and then you know the teams that that begin responding faster have historically, you know, do a better job of getting through that backlog, getting through stuff like. How much, how much do you find people grasp that concept versus just going, I just want to put out fires versus, you know, things are constantly changing and sort of breaking and being tweaked. And is this part of helping them grasp that, you know, they're, they're part of sort of solving the problem as opposed to just solving the problem? Or do people get this idea of, of you know, the faster you respond, it becomes a cultural type of thing? Oh, yeah, there's definitely... Uh some element of, you know, friendly competition between teams. But one of the things that we've been pleasantly surprised by actually is how much being able to quantify the effort that an ops team is, is putting out actually helps their standing in the organization. Hmm. And when you talk about, you know, getting our people, the reason that our people have, you know, a company paid for phones, for instance, right, is because they acknowledge faster and you get to see how much less downtime there is as a result of that. And we knew that was going to happen, but we've been pleasantly surprised by how much we've been able to sort of help improve, even over the, over the short period that uh, analytics has been out, the stature of ops teams inside the organization. Interesting. So it's, it's, it's an awareness kind of across the company that at the end of the day, I mean, you guys are hopefully helping your customers become better at delivering a better product, but you guys internally are able to you know, drive higher quality of your service, hopefully drives people to go, hey, I, I want to use the service more frequently or... Uh, push more, push more um, uh, systems on top of that. That's very, very uh, cool. So yeah, it's always it's always interesting when you can take the back end stuff and somehow relate it to driving the front end of the business. Oh, absolutely. Um, now, you guys, um, we, we've had a ton of people on the show from you know Datadog to uh, Evident IO to um, you know a bunch of companies and some of the names are, are bypassing me, but like. Almost every single one of them go, yeah, we've got uh, uh, an existing integration with uh, PagerDuty, right? And it's just sort of a checkbox almost. How much, I mean, obviously those things become very important um, because you're part of a, of a life cycle. How much do you find that that people want, like that model where it's, it's sort of, um, you know, the right tool, the right service for what they do? So whether it's, you know, logging with somebody like Logly or... Uh, you know, Datadog doing application monitoring, and then you guys are kind of managing that? Or, or are you seeing your customers go, I'm getting a little overwhelmed with so many tools that are available to me, your services that are available to me. Can you keep pushing kind of beyond your existing boundaries? Or do, you, do, you, do you find that from your customers? Do you feel like they like the level of integrations where they are and, and they, they can manage across these different systems? Oh, no, I don't, I don't think you're ever going to find that. Um, our number one class of feature requests is always, can you integrate with this new tool? And sometimes it's a tool um, that's not even on our radar. Um, other, other times it's, it's radar adjacent. Uh, like One big push, uh, companies that have been happy with us for their automated monitoring want to uh, loop in their support team, 
right? Because that's another way that they have semi-automated detection of failures. If someone complains, support verifies it, that's just as good as something coming from Nagios. Now, let's talk about kind of this, this idea of teams versus individuals versus groups and so forth. How do you, how do you guys find teams deal with um, you know, distributed support teams, how they do handoffs and escalations? Um, your system obviously does scheduling. It's got escalations. But what are some of the, the best practices you see for sort of centralized teams versus distributed teams? Do you find that the tool is and the system's adaptable to, for, for both, or do they sort of have to learn how to work across it? Um, okay, so stop me if I keep using examples from Netflix too much, but I really love their ops team. Mm -hmm. And one of their engineers was speaking, uh, I think here actually, and made a great point that no one person knows how the whole system works. So you're always going to have a trade-off between the generalized and the, the specialized knowledge for, or the localized knowledge for a particular thing. Um, and one thing that I really want to call out as an anti-pattern and you have to look out for is you don't want to be punishing people for understanding systems. If you've got the kind of an org structure where learning how to deal with a second system doubles your on-call workload, you've built a, a dangerous disincentive into your, your system. Um, in theory, though, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about theory and then we can talk about how wildly different practice is, each incident should really be a, a precious snowflake that genuinely catches you off guard and is unique in its own special way and just happens to be happening at 3 a.m. So it just happens to be 3 a.m. when you learn that your stack overflows when you send it 33,000 uh, Unicode emojis or something like that. Yep. And so you wake up, you track down the bug, you fix it, and you, you add tests as part of the postmortem to, to catch that class of bugs. And that, that definitely benefits from localized knowledge, right? You can get into the code or, or the, the infrastructure faster, but the hard parts are generally hard. Debugging is generally hard. And when you know the problem and you've got a, a stack trace, you're, I don't want to say interchangeable, but you're, you're on more equal footing. Mm -hmm. But in practice, what you have at the other end of the spectrum is you've got incidents where the expected outcome is something like babysitting a service. And it's my sincere hope that we get to the point where the words babysitting a machine uh, sound is immediately wrong as I test on production. Uh, but there you've got an incident that's intimately tied to having localized knowledge. Like, what am I looking for this process to do? What does what misbehaving look like? What do I do if it does? And what does it look like when it's done misbehaving? How can I tell I'm done? There you're looking at a very unhealthy incident or a very unhealthy uh, alerting culture, but you're looking at you require very localized knowledge. Um, so I, I went on a bit of a tangent there, but I firmly believe that a lot of the components of best practices um, postmortems on incidents, empowering the on-calls, and hiring good people actually do a lot to bridge the gap between general and localized knowledge, if that answers the question. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's good, and I think it's, it's really important because while, um, you know, the, the examples like Netflix are, are fantastic, and those guys are obviously pushing the envelope, they're doing some very cool stuff, contributing back to the community, you know, there's a lot of companies who go, um, I either can't hire that class of, of, of engineer or, or that experience, or, you know, we're a distributed team. We have, you know, data centers here, data centers there. We use this cloud, we use that cloud. And I, and I think people are always trying to figure out, okay, maybe that's the, um, the, the, the lighthouse that we sort of aspire to, but, but how do I make this fit into my environment where, um, you know, I do have, uh, gaps between you know the, the best of my team and the and the more junior people on my team, or they're distributed by time zones, so they don't really 
uh, have that sort of centralized culture. So it's it's cool to sort of understand and see in practice how do you take um, you know everybody's driving towards delivering one service, but the way your ops teams are going to be are going to you know vary wildly from you know what's in the valley to what's in Europe to what's around the world and so forth. So it's it's cool to kind of get a sense of how you guys manage both the centrality as well as sort of the individual um, people interacting with the system and so forth. Um, so I've seen I've watched you guys you guys do a really really good job of of talks and giving back and so forth and. One of the things I've, I've seen you talking about is some of the best practices that you have. Um, one of the things we see with, you know, all of, you know, a lot of the, the SaaS vendors is obviously you've got thousands of customers. And so you, you, I would guess, have a very good view of trends that are going on. How much opportunity do you get to, to teach your customers those best practices? How much do you, are you able to, to sort of go, yes, these are our best practices and, this is what our customer base looks like, and they're sort of off. And how do we, how do you course correct them to, to get closer to that? Or how, how does how do you guys do that to to drive greater awareness for your customers or value or or whatever, knowing that, that you see so much from people and you can kind of spot trends and stuff. Um, that's almost a question I want to bounce right back to you. Uh, we we're still trying to figure that out. Yeah. You're right that we do have um, we probably have the biggest collection of bad ops practices documented uh, inside our wiki and exactly how um, how exactly we can get out into the world and convince people to change those is still an, an unsolved problem here yeah. and I'm very open to any advice there <laughs> now are there I mean are there certain categories that you'd go here's my four my big four or five first things that we always see from people or that we see early on before they start using the service um, uh, yeah, so let me just jump in right off the bat and say postmortems, postmortems, postmortems. Uh, a couple of minutes ago, you said you talked about the difference in um, engineer skill when you're responding to incidents, and not all your people can respond to all types of incidents. And postmortems are the best way to share that knowledge. You don't want to get stuck in a, in a negative feedback loop where only the most experienced people can respond to the biggest types of incidents. So the less experienced people never never graduate to being fully on call. Right. Um, there, there's that, and I, I really have to stress the ownership and accountability link. I think that teams should have a control over what they monitor, and if you monitor something, or sorry, if you get alerted for something, you need to have the ability to change the way it's being monitored to, to eliminate false positives, and also you need to, to have some kind of effect on the underlying system. Um, I probably would also tag along and, and say something about understanding the quantity of technical debt you have and making sure that you don't you know, run your teams at 110% and build up technical debt that becomes harder and harder to maintain. Um, but I think that's all stuff that your, your uh, listeners would already be aware of. Yeah, yeah. Well, everybody's everybody's always trying to figure out how to how to get out from technical debt. What's the what's the way to do that? Now, when, when you talk about, I, I think when you're talking about sort of if you can monitor a system, you should have the ability to fix it. It gets into the argument of you know who should have certain levels of of access to systems and who should be able to fix things. Correct? It's you, you don't want to have to go. I'm the one on call, but I can't fix it right now. I've got to you know go three hops down to be able to deal with that. You you want to build an operational model that goes, you, you, you want to be able to give people the tools or the authority to fix it right there, or at least far enough to fix it right there, right? Is that kind of the guidance you're saying? Uh, fix it or accommodate the outage 
putting a support team in PagerDuty, they don't often have the chance to, to fix any of the bugs that, that they detect. But they have the ability to, to compensate and to help people, uh, or at least notify, notify people when things come back up. Yep. But even in the use case, what, what I think you're hinting at, where um, a provider within the company or outside the company can go down and affect my SLA to my customers, even if I can't directly fix the issues, that's still valuable. I still want to talk about that in the, well, how can you work around it, right? So we have downstream providers, um, for instance, providing our phone calls, and they go down, and we, in some, in some classes of failure, we don't even notify one of our engineers because this is something we're aware of. Providers go down we silently fail over to another provider. Yep. Uh, and if, if you're a, a significant part of your paging volume is services you don't control, you need to figure out some way to unhook yourself from them, either having a redundant service or uh, fighting the internal political battles that will get that other service more reliable. Right, right. right. Now, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of wrap this up a little bit because we get – uh, we always find there's a there's a time where we sort of get to the end of the show and and a lot of folks will listen to the show as they're driving to work or running or whatever. So, but I want to kind of uh, uh, ask one last question that I think is is sort of relevant. We talked about postmortems, um, and one of the interesting things about them is, is there's some folks who do a really really good job of writing postmortems. So Mark Imbriaco, who's been on the show before, was at GitHub. He's over at DigitalOcean now, um, but. But there's a little bit of a weird thing that happens with postmortems where you're not sure how much you want to take the blame or you potentially want to, like you just said, blame a downstream provider or a partner and so forth. Have you guys found any really good examples of companies who've, you know, A, do a good job with it, hopefully they don't have to do it a lot, but do a good job with it, or B, like have figured out how to do it in a way that doesn't discourage people from saying, hey, things happen, we figured out how to fix it. I mean, there, like, there's a whole psychology around postmortems. Do you, have, have you found any good, I don't know, suggestions you give to companies? Because if you're if you're recommending it, you want them to feel comfortable doing it because things break. It happens, right? Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to name any names, but Fair there enough. are definitely some people who are really good at the you know the marketees postmortem that oh it'll never happen again. It was this weird you know alignment of the moon problem, and then you've got other people who are really good at telling you actually what broke. Um, and I think the important thing is you actually want to prepare two postmortems. There is the completely uncensored one uh, that goes on the company wiki where you, you talk about all your warts, um, how you misprioritize something, which, which data points were missed, and a whole bunch of insider baseball about what's going to be reprioritized, what, what uh, tools are going to be tweaked. And then you've got to have your, your quick and decisive public postmortem um, which is, which is, I think, actually much harder to write, and I don't have a lot of good advice there. Right, right. No, but I mean, just just that in of itself is that you know, you you need to be aware that you want to communicate one way, sometimes internally, and and sometimes another way externally. But you want to have both those planned, and that's, I think, that by itself is is a big deal for people to know that you need to be able to think about it. And I mean, in a lot of cases, the the tools exist to sort of be able to track what happened. I mean, if it's some crazy code thing you know, that happens or hardware fails or something. But uh, I think just that in and of itself is, is really good advice for people. And, um, you know, there are, like you said, there are companies who, who do a very good job of it and, you know, recognize their, their customers want transparency more than they're looking for blame. Um, and they recognize that and they're, they're good about it. And so, well, listen, um, 
so I appreciate you coming on tonight. I know we got into a whole bunch of different topics and scenarios and so forth. Um, what's the best way beyond just signing up using the service? Like if people want to come learn from the company, because like I said, you guys do a, a cool job of, you know, talking about how you break your system, what you're doing to integrate with people. Like what are the best places to go uh, interact with PagerDuty beyond just signing up for the service, whether it's meetups or events that you guys are going to be at or wherever? Oh yeah, we're we're definitely trying to participate in more meetups. Um, those are, I mean, most of our developers are either in San Francisco or in Toronto, uh, in Canada. So we're kind of limited in the, the scope of places you can meet us face to face. We, I mean, our blog def- definitely has some some of this content. Um, but one pet project that I want to push is we are definitely becoming more of a platform. And I think one of the most exciting. Uh, thin edge or thin tip of the spear type things is actually what people are building on top of PagerDuty because you really see the problems that cutting edge uh, ops teams uh, like Heroku and, and Stripe and, and Netflix and Twitter, what they're dealing with, um, they're expressing their solutions in code. So that's actually where I'd go. Interesting. Interesting. Any, any good pointers to that or any good examples that people could go look up? Um, so, yeah, if, if you go to developer.pagerduty.com, We've got a, a section called Tools. Um, let me know if there's any that uh, any of your listeners are aware of that we haven't put there. But, I mean, my favorite story that's going on there is the, is the world of chat ops. I really like the idea of machines, people, and a shared command line all getting together to, to, to solve an incident. That's my favorite story. Yeah. No, those are very cool. I know we, we talked to the GitHub guys about what they do with Hubot. And, uh, so very cool. Well, listen, um, with that, I'm going to kind of wrap it up. Um, like I said, uh, Aaron's out. He'll be back for the next show. But Dave, um, thank you so much for being on tonight. Um, any, any Twitter handles or ways people could reach out to you directly uh, if they had questions or follow-ups? <laughs> sure. Uh, you're more than welcome. I'm EURI.ca or EURI.ca. Actually, sorry, can I retake that part? <laughs> I wasn't expecting that question. Um, yeah, sure. But best way to, for folks to reach out to you, ask you questions, uh, you know, buy you a beer, uh, talk about what's going on in their world. Oh, sure. So I occasionally ghost tweet uh, from our Twitter account at PagerDuty. But if you have a question for me specifically, it's E-U-R-I-C-A or E-U-R-I.C-A is my URL. Very cool. Very cool. Well, listen, um, thank you so much for being on tonight, folks. As always, um, you know, if you like the show, uh, tell a friend, leave us a review on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at thecloudcastnet or, of course, on the web at thecloudcast.net. You can find links to everything Cloudcast. So for Dave, for the good folks at PagerDuty, and for Aaron, thanks for listening and have a great week. still listening the show is over go back to your regular life it's much more interesting than the podcast i promise it is